Welcome to the Sign Out Podcast, where we interview folks who are pursuing their passion and who want to share that story. You run the college now, you, you can't get your hands dirty anymore. You're going to have some desk job pushing papers around because that's what you're supposed to do now. It's been all fairly self-taught. It kind of clicked with me and became very natural. That's how you learn. You learn, you learn by breaking things. I happen to be at the right intersection at the right time. Welcome to the Sign Out Podcast, another edition here. I'm your host, co-founder of Sign Out Co., Daniel Thornton. We have a great guest today, Brendan Macaluso, who is the shop director and owner of Common Motor. And you might be wondering, well, what is Common Motor? And Brendan and I became friends a couple of years ago through our motorcycling experience, and that's where Common Motor falls in. They're a specialty shop that specializes in vintage Honda parts and, and um, technical skills and know-how. And I'll let Brendan give you more about that. But first, I was just going to go into the story on how I got involved in Honda motorcycles and what led me to Brendan's shop, Common Motor. About three or four years ago, I decided that I wanted a motorcycle and I wanted to start out with something pretty straightforward. And I was born in 1973. And so I specifically wanted a bike from 1973. And me personally, I thought the coolest bike out at that point was just the plain old Honda CB. And a Honda CB350, you can still find on Craigslist, very affordable bikes. And I'm here in Katy, Texas, looking around on Craigslist and happen to find one for sale in San Antonio. And I'm going to San Antonio that weekend email the guy on Craigslist, go to San Antonio. It turns out I find a pretty good shape, 73 Honda CB350 that's running, needs a little maintenance on it. And so I purchased the bike there, rode a little bit around here, realized, hey, I need to work on this. You know, it's not running perfect. And I start doing some internet research. And I noticed there's this website that's based out of Houston called Common Motor. And I was telling another friend of mine, Jason, that uh, owns a shop in town, Reserve Supply, and I was like, hey, I found this place. And he's like, yeah, I've heard about that place also. So I ended up emailing Common Motor, who turned out to be Brendan, who I was emailing. And I was like, hey, I've got this bike. And he's like, bring it on down. And from the website, I could tell that people actually come to the shop and work on their bikes there as part of the process. And so that led me to going to Common Motor, uh, bringing my bike up there, which in turn um, led to many days of Brendan teaching me how through lessons to maintain my bike and get it back to a respectable running shape um, for 40 years old, you know, 40 plus years old. It's amazing how bikes still run and how well they are. So let me introduce you to Brendan. And I'm sure this story will come back more as to the time I've spent in his shop and the couple of motorcycles I've worked on there and more projects I have left. But Brendan, welcome to the show today. Daniel, thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about yourself and kind of your background, and then how you got to Common Motor, because I think there's some interesting points in your life that got you to there, and we'll hit on those if you don't bring them out right away. Okay, so we're going to talk about talk about myself. Yes, you got to talk about yourself a little bit. Well, I am six foot tall. Um, Are you really six foot I, tall? I am six foot tall, yes. I'm a Leo. Um, I'm a Leo, too. What do you know? <laughs> wow. <laughs> When's your birthday? August 2nd. August 17th. Okay. So that's, this is why we get along, right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Um, Are you from around here? Uh, I grew up, actually, I grew up on the northeast side of uh, Houston. I grew up near Humble. Okay. So, 
I spent the vast majority of my life in the greater Houston metropolitan area. So, yeah. So tell me, I mean, common motor, that's a, it's a niche vintage Honda motorcycles. Yes. How, how does that even come about? How how did this, how did this start? Yeah. Where does this come from? Cause that's not, you just don't go on the internet and find people dedicated to vintage Honda specifically. There's some out there. Sure. But you're definitely doing it the best. Thank you. I like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how how did the how did this come together as a as a? It's a business now. It's a it, yeah. oh, it's definitely a business now, right? Uh, so how did this all come together? Well, um, we back up a good bit. I've been yeah. I've been a gearhead mechanic person, <laughs> nuts and bolts, motors and engines from a very young age. Actually, I started messing with engines when I was about ten years old, and got involved in actually my, the, I got involved in fixing up lawnmowers that's where it started and those are basic motors basic to, and you basic engines and I'm like 10 years old 11 years old and and uh, the, the the very first one was the neighbor down the street gave me on the old lawnmower and said hey here's a lawnmower you can clean it up and use it to cut lawns for the summer all right real kind of entrepreneurial venture for a you know a uh, uh, you know, a kid basically right and i'm the previous summer i had done that i was mowing lawns for uh neighborhood for money and i realized that this is a lot of work and uh i don't want to do that so this guy gave me this mower and i, I kind of fixed it up and i turned around and i sold it <laughs> for so money. already an entrepreneur at an early age <laughs> and then i kind of got the idea and so i just started getting these other like lawnmowers uh, around the neighborhood i actually would put an ad in before the days of the internet, right? <laughs> we had those these like little neighborhood newspapers. We had free classified ads in them, like up to fifteen words. And I would put an ad in the little local classified paper for "I want your old lawnmower, dead or alive." And people would call me and say, "Come pick it up." Usually, not even just say for free, just get out of here. And just pile lawnmowers. I'd fix them up. That's where I started learning how to work on all the stuff. Throw an ad back in the free classified for sale. You know, someone would come by, buy the lawnmower for seventy five bucks or a hundred bucks, put it in my pocket as like a you know eleven year old at that point, twelve year old. That's of, big money back. That then. was yeah, seventy five bucks cash, and I would sell usually about a mower a week. Wow! And I so mean, we had this like pile of like lawnmowers <laughs> in our backyard as a kid. My dad was totally cool with because it was. You know, it was a business. That's how it kind of started being a gearhead. Now, was your dad into engines and stuff like that as growing up? My dad's um like. My dad's fairly mechanically inclined, and he would you know do his own car maintenance for the most part. But he's definitely more of a woodworker. Okay, so he's the wood. His, my grandfather was a woodworker. Um, my dad got into the woodworking thing, but also dabbled in the mechanical stuff. And then I really took to the mechanical thing, right? Not so much the woodworking thing, um, but yeah, there's there's overlap there. So there's you know there's always a toolbox for the tools, and my dad would always go fix. No, I'm yeah. gonna go fix it. I'm gonna figure it out and fix it, kind of thing. Yeah, um, that mentality. So that definitely has roots there, but um, it's also just a good skill to have. Sure, that know how of like I want to try to go figure it out mm-hmm. and fix it, and just learn from that experience. Learn from it, like learning. They realize that the the whole this I call it the world of mechanical things and things to fix really isn't as complicated as people think it is. There's right. just a lot of unknown, and you can start on really un, un, uncovering it, and you realize that wow, that's really simple, and. Um, you know, we've always not had this experience where we, we've taken something to like a repair shop or an automotive shop, or a guy comes in and tries to fix something in the house, and you realize that even though this guy might know how to do this task, that 
maybe they're not the brightest person, <laughs> like overall. Right. And then it makes you wonder, well, how complicated is this thing really? And you start digging into it, and you know, there's a big chunk of it that isn't crazy complicated. Um, you just got to have the tools, the know-how, and the willingness to take it apart, and the willingness to accept that if you break it, you either will figure out how to fix it, or all right, it's above my head. Maybe I need to pay someone else to do it. Right. But, that's, or, how, that's how you learn. You learn, you learn by right. breaking things. Right. Or in my case, I found an expert in you, and you taught me how to do general maintenance on a motorcycle that requires general maintenance over its lifetime. Over its, well, from day one, it was required on right. that motorcycle. So. Which is just taking care of what you own, right? Yeah. So common motor, fast forward, got heavily into doing, um, actually, got heavily into outboard motors. So when small I, when the first time I came to Common Motor, yeah. there was a 55-gallon barrel yep. with like two old antique outboard motors just sitting mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I got involved with this whole like vintage outboard motor thing at a young age because I wasn't old enough to drive and mess with a car. Outboard motors and the lawnmower thing was not that big of a gap. And so you could go to like a yard sale or uh, you like a junk shop and people would have an old outboard motor sitting there like 30 bucks, 40 bucks, and you pick it up and fix it up, and then you could go take it to the lake and go putt around. And so by the time I was about age 13, age 14, and that's fun because you got this, you know, you, you got to understand the mechanics of it, and then all of a sudden you get to go use it. Then you have this freedom of like, I'm out on my own boat. Yeah, I'm, I'm on my boat. Well, I'm not going that fast, right. but I'm on the boat and it's my motor, and right. I get to like go run around all day and burn up a couple tanks of gas and. You're you're happy because there's that satisfaction in, in doing that. You know, you did it yourself, right? Um, so I got involved in this club that's a collecting club of Apple Motors, and of course, being a kid coming in, all these old guys that were actually all very experienced. You know, these are people that would be my grandfather's generation um, type age. Took me kind of under their wing and taught me a lot of things along the way. All these old school mechanics, and so those were kind of my early mentors in understanding all this mechanical knowledge and. Uh, by the time I hit 16, got into the car thing, got heavily into the whole like American V8 um, kind of muscle car, hot rod thing, you know, all the gearhead type stuff. And What was your first car that you had? First car is 1974 Chevrolet El Camino, and I still have it. That is awesome that you still and have it. I still it. drive it. That's even better. Yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's still around. I can't tell you how many hours I've spent under the hood and under that car, how many times the engine has come out and gone back in, the transmission <laughs> has come out and gone back in. Like, it was like, that was, that was, my, that was my Friday night in like late high school, like early college. Everybody's going out and like partying. And I'm like, I'm going to go pull the transmission like, and I'll, fix it. And fix it. That was, that was my inner dork right there. Like, nerdiness on that, just pulling stuff out. Well, I mean, you know, it's obvious you found your passion early in terms of, mechanics motors engines and you know you can continue on but that's you're turning that into your business today yeah i mean it, it has evolved in the business and it's right. all like um the weird part about it is it's been all fairly self-taught it's weird i didn't really i mean i had some guidance and mentorship along the way um from from people who are more experienced but it, it did overall kind of kind of clicked with me and became very natural it wasn't a how did, how did you jump from the V8 cars to motorcycles? So I was heavy into the V8 car thing uh, up through uh, college. And at that point, I was going to, I was at the University of Texas, and all my time was spent on classes and doing the whole university thing. 
and I didn't have time to mess with the cars. So I ended up parking the El Camino. And I was also had this like mentality, this impression that you're going to college now and you, you can't get your hands dirty anymore. You're going to have some desk job, you know, pushing papers around because that's what you're supposed to do now. Cause you're, cause you went and got a degree. Cause you got just, a degree now. That's next, what you're supposed to do. Right. right you're right. not going to do this like, you know, no knuckle dragger type work anymore. Getting your hands dirty. And, um, so I parked it, but I, when I parked the car, I kind of parked my, like my, uh, all my, all my things mechanical. And actually I, I shelved it for a good five years. Wow. Shelved all of it, everything just shelved it and didn't do any of that stuff. Oh, barely just basic maintenance type stuff, but not like Were you getting a different person then. You know, you're being not to the, dig too deep, but I'm just, that's, no, that's you a, just, you just, you know, it, it was this whole like idea. Like again, you're going to college, yeah. you're going to get this degree and you're going to go into this other world. Right. And you can only come back to this later if you have the time for it type right. deal. And I shelved it and I really missed it. And I had gone, was working. I ended up going back to school for more education. And somewhere around that, towards the end of that schooling, um, that second, that second go around, uh, I was fed up. And let's say, I'm going to pull my car out of storage. I had broken up with a girlfriend. You know, I was right. like, this is done. All right, time to... Time to get this car. So I went and pulled the El Camino out of storage and started driving it again. And I realized that, wow, cars take a lot of space to work on. And I don't have the space that I used to have to, to work on stuff. And without space, it's hard to it's hard, it's hard to own a car and like work on it like on the street. Right. It's, some guys do it. Some guys are super hardcore. I see them do it. But it's definitely a, a tough uh, tough way to own a car. But uh, and uh, the bike thing... Was like, oh, I can do something along those lines, but the bike is smaller, and I can like store it, and I can have access to it, and I know it's not going to take up all this space and uh, real estate that the car does. I knew how expensive the car thing was after doing yeah, it for some motorcycles years. Motorcycles a little less expensive. Less expensive. It was. It was kind of closer to the whole like outboard motor thing, that smaller engine thing. Right. And um, there's a guy that I knew and living in Austin. He was messing with old bikes. And he had kind of exposed me to some bikes. And I remember he rolled up on he had a BMW, like an old airhead he had fixed up. He, he was just kind of into the bike thing. And I, at the time, didn't really get it. I was like, whatever, bikes, another thing, mechanics, whatever. And uh, he rolled up one day on this old Honda 350. It was an early one. It was a blue and white one. And it just kind of stuck in my head. Like, that's a pretty cool little bike. I think maybe I'd like something like that one day. And, of course, this was well before all this stuff was really hot on the Internet. He was just happened to be kind of the right place at the right time, sparked my interest in it and planted that seed. But that still that didn't come to fruition, probably until you know seven or eight years later. Wow! And then um, so I was fed up again. Pulled the car out of storage and fed up with it all. And I uh, uh, hit up Craigslist to start looking for an old motorcycle. Didn't even know didn't know anything about bikes. Didn't know anything about. Know, models and brands and stuff, but I did have this thing in mind where I'm like, I did know from the way th- things are manufactured, right? That there oftentimes are models of things that were very popular. They sold like Company X sold a lot of these, right? But Company X also built this other model of thing that maybe wasn't so popular and they didn't make it for very long, and they kind of fall through the cracks. And oftentimes, those really popular things command high value. Um, a good example of that would be uh, 
we talk, let's talk about guitars, like a Fender Stratocaster. Fender right. has made millions of Stratocasters, but yet they seem to hold their value regardless of how many of them exist out there because they're very popular uh, versus some of the other models they may have made, like um, you know, now Jaguars and you know, Jazz Masters are very sought out for guitars, but for a long time they weren't because they were that kind of the other guitar. Right. Uh, same thing with cars and motorcycles. And so I said, okay, there's got to be some other motorcycles that have been made that were kind of less popular bikes. And I bet you I can find one of those bikes cheap and figure it out, like figure out the, the mechanics of it. And so I stumble across a listing of a Honda 360, CB360. No idea what it is. The price on it was a couple hundred bucks. And I was like, all right, sounds good. Let me go buy this thing. Go out to go buy it. Again, know nothing about bikes. I mean, understand mechanics, right? Right. But I don't know anything about bikes and the bike model thing in the world of, of motorcycles. So, and how many years ago do you, from today do you think that is? Today, yeah. uh, that is about twelve years ago. Okay, it's been twelve years. So went out to way the south side of Houston, went to Pearland, and haggled with this this crusty old guy for <laughs> like the better part of. I don't know, four or five hours. We ended up drinking a six-pack of beer together um, to get this bike. Hopefully you got a better price at the end of that. Well, that was part of my negotiation strategy. I was like, I'm going to bring a case of beer down, and we're going to see where this goes. Um, So I ended up buying the bike and uh, had no idea what I bought. Hit up a friend of mine who had a trailer. I was like, hey, dude, I bought this thing, this bike, and he was a bike guy. And uh, and I knew him from a boat from the boating thing. Right. He was also a bike guy gear. He's another car guy gearhead kind of uh, uh, friend of mine. And he's like, "Yeah, I'll come come help you out." And so we go down there and pick up this bike. And yeah, I have no idea what I'm buying. And I just start tinkering with it. I just need, I needed the project again. You know, having shelved like the car thing for so many years and just focusing on academics and not really having that project to work on. Right. I just had that need to work on something again and so the, a, a bike filled that need i wasn't even thinking about riding riding hadn't even ca- crossed my mind and really had you, had you ridden motorcycles at a younger age a little bit a little bit my dad had a um he had a trail 90 which was a, if you're follow old honda stuff they're still very prominent all around the world these little like 90 cc which there's one in your that's shop. right that's right you brought one over now <laughs> there's one in your shop right now CT. waiting to be rewired CT90, yeah. So I, I, my dad had this red CT90. We we I, it's, I would sit on it in the garage as a kid, and like you, know, you pretend it was. We get the fire up every now and then. We would buzz it up and down the street, and just that was my first experience in, in riding. Was this on this Trail 90 my dad had, but not much. It wasn't really like a thing. And I knew my dad had, had some bikes in the past before I had, you know before I was born. Um, I had a very similar experience where my dad had a dirt bike. It was a mid seventies. Kawasaki 175 two-stroke, I think it was Kawasaki, and it's set in the corner of the garage, dusty, forever, and you just sit on it. And then one day, as my two older brothers got a little older, he's like, we can get this thing started. We repaint it and start it, and I taught myself how to ride a motorcycle one day while they were all gone by just sitting in the driveway on that thing, started it up, just letting the clutch out real easy, and then stopping. And then when my parents got home, I was like, check this out. So I had that experience very young, Mm -hmm. You know, have my dad have that bike around. And then I rode in high school dirt bikes and street bikes around Katy. But I was off a bike 20-plus years before I got back into it. 
So I was kind of missing that as well. When I, yeah, I mean, got a little, they got a little tiny taste of it, and yeah. you're younger, but then didn't really. You remember it, but it wasn't. It didn't snowball. Right. Snowball from that age. Right. So, so same thing. So you've got this bike now. I, I, I got it, the bike. Did surely. It run? When you no, got it. oh geez, no, no, it was no, not, no, it, it was, was, it was truly just like it was a project. Um, in hindsight, it was probably more of a parts bike than it was a, <laughs> a motorcycle. Wow. I, I, and I learned that's how I learned a lot really right. quickly was taking what should have been a pile of parts and turning it into a running motorcycle. Which is the you know for anybody who's interested in doing this, that's the really hard way of doing this project. Right. Any of these projects is taking something that shouldn't be fixed and you fix it up, and that's how you learn. A, a Maybe spend a, a little more on a vintage bike that's in really good shape. And then just go do the thing. I, I say buy the nicest one you can afford. Right. Right. That, that really makes a difference in, in the, the upfront buying a little bit nicer one that's in a little better shape. Right. Than buying one that's a real project because it gets deep quick. But I bought the bike not, I wasn't thinking about riding at all. It was purely just to like mechanically work on something else. Right. And, and you know, it took me a better part of two years to get it running. Wow. Like it took me that long. And again, so I, I found out real quickly. Yeah, I bought this model that's kind of between the cracks. Nobody knows what it is. The information about it is not all over the internet. And so this is 12, 12 years ago. And a lot's happened on the internet in 12 years. Yes. Like uh, the, the amount of information has right. grown exponentially on the internet. But 12 years ago, you go, you go to search for one of these using, you know, Yahoo. <laughs> Because that's what you used, right. you know, it's, uh, or you know, Google, whatever. But you search for it, and no information comes up because it, it just wasn't there. And I'm looking for service manuals. I'm looking for part numbers. I'm looking for anything. I, I go talk to Honda dealers. They had this old bike. I'm looking for parts. You have an old catalog or anything, and we don't mess with that stuff. It's too old. And so I had to kind of figure it out the hard way. So I start finding all the junkyards in town. Scouring the junkyards, looking for parts, just digging, and you know it's kind of like a little treasure hunt at that point, trying to find bits and pieces <clears throat> to put the bike together. Um, some stuff was starting to float around eBay, and um, you know, ended up finding uh, this one like guy online uh, through a forum or something, and he he was oh we mess with these bikes, and I, I wrote him and said I'm looking for parts for this bike, and he's like yeah I can help you out with it and uh he ended up selling me kind of my first batch of parts just to kind of get it going and but I put the bike together I mean but it took yeah almost two years and then once it's finally going then I uh I guess maybe I should learn to ride it <laughs> that was that came totally later it's like it's, it's together and it's running what do I do with it now you're supposed to ride so you gotta it. get your license now yeah you go through the safety class get the license do all that stuff but I again it, the, the riding thing was not like a that wasn't the goal Wow. It was just kind of a ended up being a quite a perk from doing this, but the goal was like I'm, I'm going to fix this thing up, and uh, so that's how that kind of interest in bikes started. To answer that, there was a, that was a very short answer. That was a very, short <laughs> very long answer to a very short question. But even before Common Motor, though, I know that you had to stop working in a shop doing bike restoration, right? Yeah. So fast forward, um, not that many years later from that experience, you know. Um, because doing the car thing, I'd had I had had stints at shops where I was spinning wrenches at automotive shops and you know doing general repair and engine work, pulling transmissions, just kind of I would say general general work on cars. And then um, I, I stumbled across the shop that was here in Houston 
uh, by accident. I was checking out like weird warehouse spaces on the east side of town, and it turns out one of the ones I was looking at was this shop. And it was this, uh, it was like a guy ends up being a BMW and other weird European vintage bike restoration right. shop. And I was looking at the building next door that was for rent. And I was like, this is, my friend and I were like talking about getting a warehouse that we could actually work in and have a garage space to play with our bikes and cars and toys and whatever. And, uh, met this, this, uh, guy, his name was Will, Will Spore. And, um, uh, lo and behold, I guess I must have given him a business card or something. I don't know. A couple of months later, he calls me up and says, "Hey, I'm looking for a tech that can mess with Japanese bikes." Now, what were you doing prior to that? What was I doing prior to that? Yeah, for uh, to make your bills. To make my bills. Well, I was finishing up. I was back in school. Okay, I was back in school, uh, and then I was also um, I had a job at this cookware company here in town called uh, Tramatina and they were doing they do okay. like cookware cats uh, pots and pans and state knives and things like that so I was um, an industrial designer right that's okay. what I went to school for so um, this uh, this thing popped up with this basically it was an apprenticeship that I didn't really know was an apprenticeship that <laughs> it evolved into an apprenticeship right. where this guy's like hey I, I need I have customers who have Japanese bikes I don't mess with Japanese bikes but I know you do can you you want to come work here and met the you know met kind of interviewed and sort sure sounds good started working there and I probably fixed about four or five Japanese bikes and then there was no more Japanese bikes that came in the door and I was there so I started working on BMWs BMW motorcycles and and how long so how long did you work there working on bikes I was there about two years a little bit under two years apprenticing and you know again coming into it from having mechanical experience yeah. it wasn't like I'm ground zero. Like I don't know anything about mechanics at all. It was just like, okay, let's get into like learning some nuances, nuances yeah. about about bikes. And uh, the um, the owner of the shop, Will, who was probably my, he was like my last major mentor. I had really kind of brought my skill up on a lot of the the bike thing, the details of the bikes, and uh, he's still hands down the best mechanic I've ever met, hands down. Like just so it looks at every tiny little part and detail, um, like with a microscope. And uh, now I know where you got that from. Whenever you're looking at the piece that I just cleaned, you're like, that's not very clean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's comes, that comes from like doing something and Will's like, nope, do it again. <clears throat> nope, do it again. Nope, do it again. Or the, the, one of the ones that was, a it was, it was a frustrating exercise is I was assembling this engine for a client and Will was convinced that I had done something wrong. I don't know where he, like, what it was he was convinced, but for some reason in his head, I did something wrong. He never saw it or anything, and I had the engine almost together, and it's on the bench, and I leave for the day, and I come back the next morning, it's all apart. Oh, no. Every single thing is taken apart, laid up on the bench. And, of course, I am just livid. So I'm like, we're putting this together. This is, we're, this is a client. And like, we're going to bill it. And he's like, something wasn't right. Of course, he never identified what wasn't right, but in his head, something wasn't right, and so I had to build the engine all over again. But, you know, as in hindsight, those are good experiences because you get to be really good right and it also makes you double check your work and see if you did you did you miss something so do you jump from this experience into common motor at that no. point no um and so at the shop two years and you know we end up uh end up parting ways well because we had different different ideas on how business operates and uh i learned a lot but 
I was I was done. Right. You know, differences of opinion. And uh, no, from that I ended up. Uh, I got into a whole other whole other business project. So the the for, since I was a kid, I started talking about the lawnmower thing. I feel like I've been entrepreneurial. Right. But just wanted to do this entrepreneurial type thing. Um, I had gone to uh, University of Texas Business School to to learn business so I can do entrepreneurship. And I got there, and that's not what I learned. <laughs> and I was a little upset about that. And uh, so then you go and get industrial design. Degree. Yeah, I go back to school at U of H for industrial design. Right. And uh, so two degrees later, a lot of experience. Yeah. And then um, I had uh, basically started another company. So my, my thesis work at the university at, at U of H in design was I had designed a, um, a sustainable computer made out of cardboard. And which there's one in the shop that yeah, you there's, use. There's, there's one I use daily in the shop now. Yeah. Um, but this was their first one was like a, it was a thesis. It was like, hey, look how we can approach manufacturing. It was it was a pitch on manufacturing and less um, less waste afterwards. Less waste afterwards. Less initial investment in manufacturing right. and like all this kind of full spectrum of product life cycle. Right. And um, I want to say it was a friend of mine. It could have been my one of my professors. I don't remember at this point. It suggested I, I throw it in this contest post graduation. And um, actually, no, we got my timeline mixed up. I was I was working at the uh, the pots and pans place um, when I first got the motorcycle. By that time, I was working at Dell. Okay, kind of working at Dell. So it's getting fu- it's already getting fuzzy. It's funny. That's how all right. That's it's a lot of time going by too. Uh, I was working I was working um, as a contractor for doing design work at Dell, and um, that computer got me that into that into that path. And I uh, threw the computer in a, in a competition, and all of a sudden, it started getting all this like the competition hit, and I got all this press, and out of nowhere, like this, it was all part of this eco fad stuff that was going on about ten years ago, and it just snowballed into all this interest on this product, and people wanted to see it. They know it wasn't real, was it? Wasn't was it? Was it fake? Was it? What was it? Right? And so. Um, I showed up to this like conference with it in the suitcase, like unannounced. And it was like, no, here it is. Like that was talking about this, that put on this presentation and people were like, what? It's real. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's right here. I can turn it on if you want to like, and so that snowballs into other press. And then before I know it, there's all this like global interest in this you know, project that I had done um, coming out of school and people were, Sending me emails saying, "Can we buy this? We want this. He's manufacturer. How do we get it?" And after a few months of, of being bombarded by this stuff constantly, I was like, "I guess maybe we're onto something." And so, so I'm gonna start another. I'm gonna start a business. We're gonna manufacture these, right? And um, jumped into that venture as a, a full time gig, and figured out how to manufacture computers out of cardboard. Right here in Houston. That's and, all. I uh, think what's, what's so cool about your story, too, is your willingness to go and try different things. I mean, there's definitely some pivot points in your life where it's whether it was mechanical and you did different mechanical things or things just naturally changed for you. But, I mean, I think that's really – it's cool from an outsider to look back at that and say, you know, you had, you were in cars, motorcycles, which are mechanical. I mm-hmm. mean, that brought together. Then you, then you have this – Totally cool cardboard design computer, which just is not part of motorcycles and all that. And then, and it just all comes back full circle, though. 
Yeah, it's really weird. Um, but it's, can, but your willingness to do that too. I mean, that's entrepreneurial spirit. Sure, to, sure. To take those risks and say, figure okay, it I'm going to go try it. I'm going to figure it out. Right. That's that's the entrepreneur. I'm and it f- doesn't always work. Nope. Right. Well, there's a lot of hurdles. Yeah. Uh, and like ex- a good example would be in the in in the in the cardboard computer thing, trying to figure out. We're trying to figure out how to cut the cardboard fast, cheap, and efficient with minimal equipment, right? Because we had the, the original concept was built on a prototyping table, which is just basically like an exacto knife that's on right. the, on a three axis, you know, cutting table. So the exacto knife just runs around and cuts the shape out. Um, you can't. That's not production level um no you can't do that at production level right and of course that was done at like bump like barred some time from a buddy who had a table his work kind of thing you know as a favor as a project but it wasn't uh wasn't sustainable for manufacturing had job to work out to this company here in town that swears they could do it oh man we can get this done and they do the run and they just obliterate the cardboard and it's like this is not going to work and they didn't they're like, no, no, we told you it couldn't work, and you said to go anyway. And I was like, no, 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 you told me it would work. It was one of those, like, he, right. said, he said, she said type arguments. And so I was like, I'm going to figure this out. It took me nine months to figure out how to cut cardboard clean. Something that seems so simple and straightforward. Something that seems so nine. With an X Acto knife by yourself, it is. But to do it for hundreds or I mean, however many pieces. Well, the, the, the main thing, the, the challenge was we were trying to punch out shapes of cardboard, right? So cardboard is, is, is each piece of cardboard is made of three three layers, right? You got outer layers, and you have that wavy thing right. in the middle. Um, what was happening when we were, we were cutting them? We we're using a die, which is kind of like a cookie cutter, the way you think about it. And the die has to go in and cut the cardboard. And the goal was to cut the cardboard, but not crush it. And of course, right. you're when you're trying to push a this cookie cutter like thing through cardboard, you're squishing it down. So it's like, how do you get that cut to be perfect? Where you minimize that squishing and then re- being repeatable thousands of times over and over again. So this is all like production engineering stuff to figure out. And so I ended up buying the equipment to do it from like eBay, setting up in my buddy's garage. And so ultimately the hurdles became too great for cardboard well, we, I mean, manufacturing we, or we we produce no, we got, we we figured out all the production stuff. Right. Well, the reason the the, the, so the company, after five years, I ended up pulling the plug on it. Um, we'd gotten into retail. Um, Fry's had picked us up, uh, Fry's Electronics, and we were in Fry's stores. But at that point, I was like, I needed to have what I call a keystone client. That client that's like, yes, I like this. Right. We're going to order 500 units, 1,000 units, or we're going to invest in this company because we want to grow it based on the concept. And I just struggled to get that. Yeah that bigger client. I was getting small orders, you know, a dozen here or, you know, onesies, twosies or individuals and stuff, but that wasn't sustainable um, in the long run as far as like building up a business. Building up a business, right. you know. It was still at that point, we're still cranking them out of my friend's garage. You know, that was that was the fi- manufacturing facility right. was a, it was a two-car garage that we did everything in and uh, you know, over the over the lifespan we produced I want to say we produced about 150 computers wow. overall. Like by the time we added them all up, but yeah. it would be like you get a few a month to yeah. produce, and so we you know crank out a couple a month and and ship them on their way. But it never it never hit. So had you already by the time you're finishing that up, had you even started Common Motor? Or was no, it, no. So I, you stopped recompute. I stopped recompute. I said I'm done. And I'm then just done. 
And then you're working then? I, I took a year off. Okay. And I went back to working um, this consultancy that was, I was, I was working at Dell. It was actually a consultancy that was a contractor for okay. Dell. Yeah, you know, it all works like that. So went back to the consultancy, um, uh, doing some more work for Dell. Are you riding uh, your motorcycle during this period? Yeah. Okay, so you're, the bike bug is still there. The bike bug is, I'm still riding the bike. I'm still on a bike, you know. So get us all the way now to just how we, how, how does it, you're like, I'm going to start a website now. Okay, so here, this, this is how the actual common letter thing comes in the focus, right? So I took a year off, was done with the whole, um, done with the whole uh, recompute thing, was done with all that. I was just over it. And uh, by that time, uh, my old roommate had moved out. He moved down the street from me into this house that had a pretty sweet garage. And he had bought an old Jeep, and I had got him in the wrenching and stuff. He was he, he didn't do anything mechanical, and now he's totally gearhead. And uh, he bought this old Jeep, and he's hey, I got the garage now. It's like a four-car garage. Here's wow. a key. We now, we now have some space to work. And I was like, cool, I'm going to bring my bike over there and work in the garage there. And so him and two other guys that we're friends with, we all shared that little garage just as a, just a wrench space to work. And um, I had my bike over there one day. I'm doing some work on it, and I, I uh, take it for a spin around the block to test something. I made an adjustment, and I'm just going around the corner. And I happen to have the uh, – I work with those blue nitrile gloves to keep you know fluids and stuff mm-hmm. off my hands. And I kept the gloves on as I went around the block. And I'm on the block, pull in the driveway, and this car pulls in the driveway after me. This guy hops out in the car, who I don't know, and says, hey, man, is, is, is this your old bike? I was like, yeah. He's like, I have an old bike too. Can you teach me how to work on it? Wow. And I'm looking at him kind of like weirdly. I'm kind of like get bent. <laughs> like I'm like not buying what he's <laughs> like what he's telling me at all. Because I've yeah. you, you, when you start messing with old bikes and old cars and stuff, you get all these guys that are like, oh man, I well, I used to have one of those, man. And I'm gonna do all these things to it, and you get these weird kind of hoopla stories that people give you, and you know, 95 percent of them are like a fish story (laughs) they're highly exaggerated so it's kind of hard to take people seriously after a while and this guy was super serious about it i was like no no man i i really want to i really want to learn how to work on an old bike and uh, he goes hold on give me five minutes he leaves he comes back five minutes later on his bike he i didn't know he lived in the neighborhood and he rolled up with a honda 550 he says i got this old bike i don't know anything about it I know that I need to learn how to work on it. I don't know how to do any of that stuff. I know you know because I'm looking at you know these old cars here in the driveway and this old bike and I'm peeking in the garage. And you know what's going on. I want you to teach me. He was very insistent. And I thought about it for a little while and I said, all right, be here next week at this time. Bring 100 bucks cash. All right. So I show up the next week, and they're at the garage. He rolls in his bike, gets off the bike, takes a hundred bucks out, puts it in my hand, and says, "Teach me." I said, "All right." Let me start going. That's how it started. That's exactly how it started. So I w- it was totally like I happened to be at the right intersection at the right time. Right. And so I've experienced I've experienced this with you because I was the guy who shows up to now Common Motor Collective. But talk about what that, because this is actually a multi-pronged business the way I see it, because I'm friends with you and I'm local, so I get to go 
to the shop and be part of the collective, which is a group of folks that works on their bikes together. Mm -hmm. But there is support, there's YouTube videos, there's selling Honda parts all over the world. So talk about that more from teaching a guy in a lesson now into a full-fledged business employees. What all does... I say, what is Common Motor Collective? When I say, when, when you're not explaining that to somebody, like, what is it? How do you explain that to somebody? It's a, it's a large um, enterprise now in terms of what all it does, whether you're local does, or any, it, any country. It does too many things. You do too many things. Um, That's good, though. It's, I guess it's good to be like we do multiple things versus like when you do this one thing at all. You right. Know? Um, so Common Motor, I, I frame it up as we're a technical support company. Specializing in technical support of the following Honda motorcycles, right. and we list off a few models that we that we support particularly. Um, that evolved actually starting with those lessons thing, right? So fast forward, I start I throw a Craigslist ad up, start teaching people lessons, right? Just why not? People are interested in this old motorcycle thing, and so I would go to their house and let's work on your bike together for a couple. And your hours. timing's just to interrupt. Your timing's been good too. Because that mo- those Honda motorcycles, you know, when you go back a few years, they're starting to become more popular. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, everybody wants to make a cafe racer or everybody just wants to get an old motorcycle going. So you really were hitting it in stride with people wanting to find those bikes. And yeah. Can- and it was, and that's total coincidence. Right. It wasn't like, like I, I, in hindsight, I'm looking back, there was, uh, um, we started seeing some media, especially um, these guys were doing a show, Cafe Racer TV. That was going on, which I was oblivious of. I had no idea about this show that was happening. I had known that there were people messing with bikes, right. and I, I kind of thought it was at the caliber of my the Albert Motor Club I was in, right? Which is totally like it, it's it's an insider's club in the sense that unless you're really dorky, I call it dorky. You're like really really into this into vintage outboard motors. Unless you're geeky, like really geeky about it, right. nobody else outside this club. You know, gives gives a damn about it. It's like, right. oh, that's some old stuff, right? And I kind of thought that's where the bike world was because that was my perspective from this other motor world. I'm like, oh, they're just old bikes. It's going to be a club, the same kind of thing, bunch of old guys, and only those guys care about it. And it's a total hobby thing, and they horse trade parts to each other, and it's just kind of a camaraderie of of like minded people. And that's about it. And that's how I thought this bike thing was. However, inter- you were specializing in a bike that was sold worldwide. Well, that's so that kind of um, there, there, there is a little bit of uh, thought behind that. What happened was we started off the, the parts thing happened because I was teaching lessons, right? And people are like, "Hey, I need parts," and they couldn't find parts. So now you're ordering them. So I, I know how to find parts because I had learned right learned this years ago. I said, "This is all again pre. It's it hadn't really hit hard on the internet yet." This is all still going through like black and white catalogs and like pulling old numbers up and cross-referencing numbers and doing like the old school guy at the the auto parts store used to do and finding parts. So we go to a lesson and I'd show up with the parts. Here's the parts. Here's the lesson. We're going to have a pretty good lesson because we have the materials here, right? Right. So that led me into realizing that people needed parts and parts parts are a good moneymaker. And if I can find the parts and help provide that service, there's... That's that's a lucrative enterprise, and what I was finding out though, as I'm giving lessons, everybody had a different bike. 
<clears throat> I'm having to source stuff from all over, find places, like what I, whatever I can from wherever I can to get them in my hand. Of course, I'm just buying whatever retail places have it or whatever warehouse I can get in contact with has it still and right. was willing to ship it type thing. And uh, I said, hey, you know, the, the, the parts thing is lucrative. And if you, have, if you have parts for something, you can keep something going. You can keep something alive. And, and this actually ties back into the whole the recompute thing. I was, in fact, I was talking to my business partner, Russ, earlier today about how it just hit me after reading more about recompute yesterday, how what we're doing at Common Motor, like with me trying to bring my bike back, and is just the exact same thing of taking this old object, keeping it sustainable, just keep working on it, and it's going to go for as long as you want it to go, as long no. as you're willing to just do a little work. This is this is still my applied. Yeah. When I talk to when I talk to designers about Common Motor, like fellow designers, I'm like, oh, it's a design sustainability project. They're like, how? And I'm like, well, we're talking about manufactured goods, right? Which is all industrial design, mass produced manufactured goods. And part of that, that thesis work in, in pitching the computer, the computer wasn't the thesis work. The thesis was actually like this whole like sustainability about manufacturing product right. and realizing that what, what, what makes something obsolete is lack of support, lack of knowledge, lack of part supply. You take away those three things from an object, then it's obsolete. For the most part, you know, right. like soft, if you, have, if you have electronics with software, it gets a little bit more complicated. That's why I got, went down the computer route as well, because it gets really complicated quickly. Um, but for most things that aren't, you know, software driven as well, that's it. Mechanical objects. If you have support, knowledge exchange, and parts, you can keep it going for a long time. And uh, I was always fascinated with the whole, um, the Volkswagen Beetle thing and how they made tons of Volkswagen Beetles, and yet they still make a bunch of aftermarket parts for them, and they're still supported heavily, and you can go pretty much go buy a brand new Volkswagen Beetle engine still, if you want. Uh, the same thing was true with um, like the Ford Mustang stuff. Uh, we actually have a Ford Mustang uh, supply house here in Houston, because I had done some work um, when I was doing my, my car thing. Right. I had done a, I, I rebuilt an engine for a lady and her Mustang. And I ended up going down to this Mustang supply place here in Bel Air a couple of times. And I'm like, there's a whole specialty store that's just for parts for this one model of car. Well, I mean, my bike's 45 years old and I can call you guys and yeah. I can get almost every part for it brand new. Pretty much now. You know, except for a couple of things maybe, but. Pretty much. I mean, but, but so when I started my first bike though, that wasn't the case. Right. There was nothing. Like there were parts were out there, but they weren't. So you've seen a resurgence of manufacturers willing to take the step and even yeah. start producing old. I mean, re- Re- reproducing, reproducing, yeah. reproducing new parts. Right. Um, that's that's totally happened. Um, some of it is just some of the parts have always been there. They just kind of fell by the wayside because they weren't right. in demand. So they've been sitting in a warehouse for forty years collecting dust, and no one had a. They weren't being called upon, and so I went and dug them up. Found them. Which is really fun when you find new old stock. New old stock and stuff, yeah. And you start to realize how much stuff has been produced and how much of it is just yeah. <clears throat> still sitting on the shelf, never used. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how the parts thing happened. But the you, you, you said the question about the the um, uh, mass produce. Um, yeah. The common thing. thing. So let's think about it this way, right? So when you had an object that's mass produced, you know, there's obviously more of them floating around. 
and they're going to need the same level of uh, support, knowledge exchange, and parts as something that may have been uh, not so mass-produced, right? So uh, I keep using the car example because I think more people can identify with cars than, than with bikes. So the, again, the, as much as people would love to have, um, you know, let's say, a Ferrari, right, the reality is there's a lot more Ford Mustangs out there, and there's a lot more people that can, you can get information about Ford Mustangs out there, and you can get the parts for them, and all of a sudden you have accessibility. And so when we're looking at the whole part supply thing and, and want to specialize in the bikes, I said, well, what bikes were mass-produced that they made a lot of? And I think I Googled something like the mass, like most mass-produced motorcycles ever, and, of course, Honda 350s came up on that Which list. that the bike that you bought was not a 350. So 360, 360, right? But then I, I had learned by that point the 360 was the follow-on to the 350, right. which meant there was overlap. There's always overlap right. in, in, in design architectures. And very rarely do companies like say, we're going to scrap everything we've done in the previous generation and start from ground zero and build everything up from, from there. There's usually a level of overlap in design. And so I, I had known that, and that's where I kind of got into the, so the parts thing. So you got a website. I mean, out of that, you start a website. To- the, the, actually, the first website wasn't Common Motor. Common Motor came later. The first website was called HondaCB360.com. I think I've seen that just from Googling. Yeah, that's an ago. old website. And that was, I was, I was, what happened was I was selling parts for 360s, okay. having had a 360, right. and I knew I'd found some of the hard-to-get parts, and I knew people were getting interested in them, so I threw up this like WordPress website with a terrible like e-commerce plugin and didn't know anything about web coding, and... I had probably about 10 items for sale in my web store. But if you're looking for it... You would find it. You you'd would, find it. Right. You'd find it. Something, well, something popped up. Something popped up now. That's what happened to me. I mean, like, what's this common motor collector? Yeah. What is it? What do you mean I can come down there and work on my bike? I, that, I, I didn't know what that... I mean, I, I'm reading it, but I didn't know for no, sure. That, so you, I guess we're, we're transitioning into is like, what, how, did this, how did this go from, okay... Like a little side parts website to like teaching guys lessons on the side, and to now when I walk in, there's three employees working full time. Yeah, you know when I go to wrench on my bike, at bike, night. and there's a mountain of parts and there's a pile of dead bikes in the back. Which, and- by the way, if you were looking for a vintage bike, you can always contact Common Motor because they always have a couple of vintage bikes that are good starting projects. If you want to learn this, so absolutely, that's always um, they always have a couple of bikes back there um, where mine's parked right now. Mine's not for sale, but. To always just look at the other ones like, oh, wouldn't that be nice to have another one in my garage? So we can all, make we can make that happen. I know. <laughs> There's two out there right now, though, and that doesn't include the two that's at your garage. That's also so true. I'm up at four, and that's not uh, that would not work for me to bring all four back home. You, I think you have plenty of space. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I do too, but one car at least has to be parked in the garage. So now you're selling parts, though. I mean, you're selling parts worldwide now, globally. Yeah. I mean, so if you're in Houston locally. You can do the lessons. Um, I don't know if you're how often you're doing lessons now, but you can. There's still wrenching if you're willing to, you know, join the collective and be part of that. But you are truly selling parts worldwide, technical support because if people order parts from you, they can call you guys, mm-hmm. ask questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I've watched you do Facebook Live. Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw there was a guy on there from Mexico uh, asking questions on Facebook Live 
Friday when you were doing those. Yeah. So I, I want to get back. I want to get back to doing them. It's been right. They've been a little bit of a hiatus lately. That was my eleven o'clock Friday lunch deal. Was I could like <laughs> go, go on to Facebook, Facebook Live? Facebook yeah, you, Live. You were you were chiming in quite quite a bit. So that's so. How long is how many years now have you been doing this Common Motor? Because I think I've been around about three. Common Motor uh, in this past May, it would have been. Uh, the shop would have been six years. Wow. The shop. And then seven years if you want to count the kind wow. of that, that first year of, right. of teaching lessons and starting to sell parts and then getting the space and kind of building the space out was all kind of in the course so of a year. seven years in, do you still feel like you're just a young business still figuring it out um, from the standpoint like there's a lot left to do? Do you, are you, I mean, are you, do you feel like you're maybe semi-mature in business? How do you, or are you feeling like that? Because that's a, I, I, I only reason I ask that question because you've put a lot of time in this mm-hmm. and it's, I've personally watched it just from showing up to the shop. It's grown. I, I continually see the inventory grow, the number of employees grow, which are doing on all the different social media, all that's growing. Um, and it's still a small business. Yeah. So where, but from a maturity standpoint, where do you put that? I still feel like it's not not totally matured yet. Yeah. I feel like we're approaching we might be approaching um a pivot time. A time to pivot not like people talk about pivoting usually in business because something isn't working yeah, out. You're changing, but you're, I think you're like a growth, like you're growing up even more. Yeah, like I think we're we're approaching a, a place where it's like all right, you know, we we we're probably time we're probably due for a new yeah. space. Uh, we're probably the the whole co-op side of the shop, the community side of the shop. I'd like to get more back into, and I'd love that to be able to be its own kind of self-running entity. Right, right. But that again, as an initiative, uh, that takes a full-time initiative right there. Right. Just just a, having a having a, a shop space and having a a foreman being able to like. Be on top of it. Yeah, and answer a, questions when needed. Answer questions, help people out, right. you know, make sure things are being done correctly and safely, yeah. things like that. Um, Let me. The reason I ask that question mm-hmm. though is because from a, from a listener, if somebody's listening to this, you may not be interested in motorcycles, and you may not be interested in cars or cardboard computers. But I think what what you what is interesting to to think about is what it takes to be an entrepreneur to start a business. Because Russ and I are two years into looking at starting a business. We're a year into starting Sign Out. We're only six weeks into selling product for that. You're seven years into a business. And my, my point in all this is that it takes patience and time and work. And overnight success is the rarity. You're, you really have to slowly build it step by step. And learn how to grow. I mean, we we find out that, I mean, if somebody, I mean, there's only so much that two people could handle in terms of however many orders came in. And so you, you've been through that, like, okay, I've got so many orders now. Now I'm getting this many orders a day. So you've, it, for, for those listeners that just think, oh, I'm just gonna go start a business and, and tomorrow I'm going to be successful. That's not how it works. That's not no, the real world. It doesn't real world. The real world is I've put seven years in and I still feel like my business is new. And let's, let's talk about, I'm, I'm happy to like, Tangent kind of into yeah. that, like, let's. What does it really take with with the business thing? Because, um, you, know, you have, you know, I know there's companies out there that may be able to get 
let's say, a lot of funding really quickly, right? Right. All right, so now you just have a big bankroll, and you start spending all this money in the quote-unquote hopes that something takes off. And this is kind of the, um, you definitely see a lot of that happening with the whole uh, a Silicon Valley right. type thing yes. where you get yeah. all this money. But I'm always wondering in these ventures, you know, how, how well are these businesses really working? Really, like you've, you've spooled up from, you know, a very small group of people doing something and now you have millions of dollars and you have to now go from this this scale that you are working at to an exponentially larger scale in a very short time period. How do you really do that? That is, um, I don't know. And I think that's why it's it's the rare success story that blows up into what you, you know, know. It's like what know about. but businesses that are like, I mean. I mean, we, we, there's you know countless examples of businesses that get there's you no know, obviously have large startup capital, but let's say you started a manufacturing company, right? Um, I, I, I would love to know like what, what it took for to test like it off the ground, right? You know, I know Elon Musk has been very kind of fairly open about that, but there's also a lot of unforeseen, unseen that we don't know, not because they're trying to hide, just because it's the if you're not in it, you're not in it, you don't see right. it, and so how, how well does that take to all spool up and go together? And of course, being a small company. You know, we're all you know, everything is funded internally. Like we didn't have outside investment. We didn't right. have um, a bunch of capital to start with. We had a little bit of money to start with, and had to take that that little capital and snowball it. But it's also it's it's caused you to make decisions based upon that because absolutely you're limited resources. So I have mm-hmm. to make good decisions, and sacrifice something here for the benefit over here. Um, so I think th- that is very much a good learning experience on how to run a business. Is to that doesn't mean that taking funding is bad in every opportunity that you. I mean, if you have opportunity to take funding, that may be a good decision for that business. But truly, self funding and then being able to watch that money invest in the money into the business and then watch it grow. You just, I think, you just you make really good decisions because of that. There, there is something to be said about yeah, self funding being able to be limited by your by your by your capital because right. then you then you have to make those decisions to to make that capital work for you. Right. And then on top of it, we've been really fortunate that uh all ever since we started Common Motor, we're we're in the black every year. We are which not Which is amazing. Which I mean, is and people don't realize how many businesses exist that are like even though they could be giant businesses that are constantly losing money. Right. They're just so big that no, they have enough cash flow to lose money. They have enough money. cash flow to lose money, but <laughs> right. you know, when you're a small business, losing cash flow doesn't right. It doesn't really work. So um, yeah, we were always from from day one in Common Motor. It's always been how, uh, how much do you think that you being able to do something that you're pretty passionate about in terms of um, obviously you haven't been passionate about bikes your whole life, but motors and mechanics. How much do you think that has really helped you? be an entrepreneur and be in the world that you're in right now. The fact that you're pursuing your passion as your job as well. I, I could easily comment. That's easily comment. So, I mean, obviously you, you gotta be, you gotta be fairly interested and fairly knowledgeable and willing to continue to gain knowledge in right. the thing that you're building your business around. Um, and I, I can easily say with Recompute, like Recompute was, you know, try to make a business out of something that was a, a school project. And the reality is I don't really care about computers. 
like they're a thing, they're a tool, whatever. I learned a hell of a lot about computers, um, but computer and computer technology was not something that I was like in love with. Right. In fact, I didn't. I, I didn't even know how to build a computer on that first prototype. I had to have my friend show me how to build it and load the software and all that stuff. I knew nothing about it. But you've been doing motors since you were ten years old. Been doing motors since a long time. So right. that one that one worked. So like that that was the big. Um, that was probably the biggest hurdle with recompute was that I just wasn't passionate about computers. And that's probably part of why it, it wasn't successful because even though I'm trying to push the boulder up the hill, right. um, just didn't care. I, in, in the back of my mind, I just didn't care that much about computers. And um, so I, I probably was not taking the steps that I needed to really move it forward. You know, I think if I was that passionate about computers, uh, Recompute would have probably uh, snowballed into something bigger or grown into something bigger. But I just didn't care. Right. You know, I said it was a, to me it was a pro, it was a it was a applied project. You know, um, I think I was mentioning to you guys earlier that I look at it as kind of like my my MBA, trying to apply all those pieces together and make it happen as a real company. But in the in the end, I just didn't just didn't care about it. I just didn't care about computers. That's a great MBA, though, is actually starting a business and running it. I mean, yeah. you can't get a better That's it. skill set That's and, it. and actually doing you, it yourself. You have to do it. Yeah. You know, I, I call it the, the I think about the, I call it the, the theoretical hamburger, right? You get, you get the, you can have the theoretical hamburger that someone tells you how great it's supposed to be and how you're supposed to cook it and what kind of you know, bun you're supposed to do and the toppings on it, right? But then you ask the person who came to the theoretical hamburger to cook it, and they go, "Well, I don't know how to cook. I'm not a chef, <laughs> right?" It's like, yeah, you, know, you got to be able to cook the hamburger. So, so I think I, the reason I ask that question is because, yeah, if you're not into motorcycles and you listen to this episode, it may not be as interesting to you because you think we just talked about engines and motorcycles. But really, the way I view this episode is that we really talked about um, what you're interested in and how you've led that into a career, and I think that's something that's really cool. Um, and, and, you know, you have a design aspect too, and this is to nerd out a little bit more on bikes specifically. I mean, you've been designing a part for the CB350 that I'm eager to have put on my bike. Actually, and, I, actually, I have a, I have a beta on your bike right now. I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you a video of it on your bike. And awesome. Then, so that, but, but I just bring that up because I know that's really geeking out on motorcycles, but that's a, a niche that you've something that's been a common source of frustration of people getting their bike running is keeping their ignition timing and everything together using points, which car engines a long time ago used, mm-hmm. motorcycles use. It's very common, but to convert that to electric ignition is going to make a big difference in those bikes, make them run better, make the power be more efficient in the bike, the electricity be more efficient. So that I just I just bring that up because it's another thing. Even within selling motorcycle parts, you're getting to use your design creativity mm-hmm. to say, you know what, this bike's 45 years old, but with technology today, we can make it better. Make it better, yeah. And actually, and an example in doing all the parts, no matter what parts we've done, we've always tried to take whatever parts we can find from manufacturers and improve upon it. Because oftentimes we'd find. Um, a part that's like, all right, this is pretty close, but it's not quite right. We need to modify it to make it work better for the bike. Or, hey, this kit of of, of pieces is, is missing something. Let's source the other part. Let's source the other pieces and make it whole and complete. That way, when someone gets it in their hands, like everything's there, 
and the accuracy is close to 100% as we can make it. Which your carburetor kit is. Which it is. Yeah, yeah, that's an example. <laughs> that's, that's a good example. I mean, right. it's, it's, it's a lot of those kind of like looking at the details of, like, we don't have to make it from scratch, but in, in the end it needs to be, it, it needs to be right. When, when a customer has something in their hand, they want to make sure this is right, this is accurate, this is quality, and I have any questions, I can go back and ask the questions and get clarification. And if something's not right, be willing to get it fixed. Be willing to say as right. a company, hey, yeah, we'll get, it, we'll get it fixed, man. So, I've learned so much from you, and I still feel like I don't know that much about motorcycles. I'm, I, I'm still learning too, trust me. And <laughs> I, I've enjoyed, though, being able to you know, have a vintage bike and then have a resource like you guys to lean on. And just knowing... Watching your Facebook live streams, like I was saying, there's a guy from Mexico commenting in. There's people all over the world who's getting information from you guys. Um, because in the day of the internet, it's communication so easy. So that's that's one great thing about starting a business like this that's very web-focused is, is your audience is everyone that has a vintage Honda motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a vintage Honda motorcycle, then you should get on Craigslist and find one and not overpay for it. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully, I mean you don't. You don't know. Actually, that's a, that's a, something that we've been wanting to. Well, it's we have much much more content to write and film right. and talk about. So that's the other thing we we've been doing a lot of YouTube, like a lot of YouTube ver- videos and YouTube series on how to you know, either repair something or adjust something. And like right now, we have a series going on, um, which was we took a we took a typical bike that someone would find and went through all the repairs on it necessary to make it street worthy again to go on a long road trip. Right. So one of the other guys at the shop has been, he's kind of the, he's kind of the uh, heading up that project. Yeah. Y'all have some great how to you YouTube videos out there on how to do basic maintenance on your motorcycle. And I know I've talked about Hondas today. I did bring uh, a Yamaha XS850 1980 model into the shop for a round of maintenance that uh, even though that's not your specialty bike, you were able to help me out a lot on. And we figured out and did a bunch of good stuff on I that. I mean, it's, it's nuts and bolts. We right. had actually, here, here, here's an interesting update. So we've had a, in the shop, we've had a member who has a, a, a bike that was built in Ukraine called a Nepper. It's like an old sidecar military bike. You know, you've seen it, yeah. the, the olive drab one there. He's been working on it at the shop now for uh, four years, and we just got it to fire up the other day. Oh, first I'm excited. Time. The first time, yeah. So I want to ride in the sidecar. Yeah, it, no, it's, it's running. <laughs> Engine runs now, but, oh, now, but we have to, now we have to go through do some more. Of the, maybe like, it needs brakes. It needs, it needs some more work, but that was the big hurdle. And, of course, the, here, here's you know, we talk about supply and information exchange and the source. We have a motor, this guy has a motorcycle that came from, it's from the 1970s. It was built in Ukraine. The company doesn't exist anymore. Where do you find the information and the parts and all the things to, to, to sustain right. a mechanical object like that? And so it's been a slow project because it's kind of like, all right, well, now we got to make a part. Now we right. got to, uh, you know, work around something else, or no, we got to get this fixed, and we got to, you know, send this off to a welder and have him weld this thing because it doesn't. Yeah, it takes some origin. I mean, it takes some work to get that done. Yeah, there's there's no easy answer with it. So if people want to get in touch with you directly, um, or the shop, you know, they're they're interested in, in, hey, I bought this motorcycle now. What's the best way to do that? To get in touch would just be to go to the website. 
Which uh, is? Which is www.common-motor.com. So commonmotor.com, which the dash between the common dash and motor. Dash between the common motor, yeah. Like them on Facebook also because they're active. Um, I know you're not active right now, but therefore, while you're doing your Facebook, Facebook series. Lives. So com- best way to get a hold of us through the website. There's a contact form. Right. E- email. You can get in contact with us. That's easy right there. Uh, on Instagram, Common Motor. Facebook, Common Motor. Uh, YouTube, Common Motor. Awesome. Um, I mean, if you just typed in Common Motor in, in Google, we're going to pop up. You're going to come up. We're going to pop up. I appreciate your time today, Brendan. This is an awesome conversation. Um, it was awesome talking about entrepreneurship. Even though it's motorcycle-based, I think folks can learn a lot. And uh, looking forward to getting this out there. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. Hey, this is Caleb J. Murphy, one of the producers of the Sign Out Podcast. If you've listened this far, you're probably into motorcycles. So you should head on over to common-motor.com and check them out. They're doing some pretty cool stuff. If you liked this episode, go ahead and subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever podcasting app you use. And if you leave us a nice review, that would really help us out. We'd appreciate it. Also, be sure to check out our website at signoutco.com. This episode was recorded by Daniel Thornton and produced by Daniel and myself. If you like the music, I actually made it. If you want to hear more stuff like that, you can check my website out at calebjmurphy.com. And from all of us on the Sign Out team, thanks for listening.